You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. the Pratt Library and the African American Department. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of this beautiful department, and it is my pleasure to have you here as guests for our Writers Live series. I also have the distinction of introducing this evening's guest, Pamela Rigby. First-time authors Vivian Rigby, a graduate of then Morgan State College, and Pam Rigby, a graduate of then Towson State University, both lovers of black history and a good mystery, began writing Waiting to be Found, The Lost Treasure of Fanny Keene in 2003. Their book about some of the people pictured in a 19th century photograph album owned by a former slave led Vivian, a longtime teacher, historian and genealogist, and Pam, a photographer and part-time IT instructor at the time of at the time on an exciting journey. Plowing through census records and anything else they could find, their research came to an end when Pam went back to work full time. Then in 2007, when Pam was able to resume their research, her mother's interest had waned. She would later learn her mother was dying of cancer. Unwavering in her determination to complete the journey she and her mother had started, and to honor Fanny Keene, Pam picked the project back up part-time immediately after her mother's transition in October of that same year. Over the course of the, the next nine years, Pam would travel to places where Fanny and others had lived five different times, solving some of the mysteries and even connecting with several families of descendants. Tonight, you will hear about the journey of Pam and her mom and meet many of these and meet many of those who are still waiting to be found. I welcome Pam Rigby to the podium. Got to pull this down a little bit. Everybody knows that, right? <laughs> Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. I would first like to thank everybody here at Enoch Pratt for having me and my friend Robin Green, who couldn't be here tonight, who uh, started the ball rolling here with uh, Enoch Pratt. I'd also like to thank all of you for coming tonight. I appreciate it. I see family. I see friends. I see coworkers, and that makes me very happy. I'd also like to take the time to thank my parents who are in this room somewhere, <laughs> I know, and also to thank Fanny. If it hadn't been for her incredible collection of photographs in her album, uh, I wouldn't be standing here today either. What you're looking at here is the entire collection of all of the images inside of her album. There were nearly 80, 80 photographs, nearly 100 people pictured, mostly African-Americans who lived before, during, and after the Civil War. 
My mom and I first met Fanny in 1984 at an auction just a few blocks from here on Howard Street, Ronald Rooks's antique shop. <laughs> I don't remember the day. All I know that the year was 1984. My mom had seen this album up for auction, and she knew she had to have it. I had no idea what the album looked like or anything about it. I was, it was my first auction, and we were both very excited. $200 later, <laughs> my mother won the bid, and we took the album home. We had hoped that someone in the album may have been a relative. One of the primary reasons for that was that many of the people pictured inside of Fanny's album were from an area of the country where my mother was also from, Missouri. Lots of the people pictured in Fanny's album were either from Missouri or Illinois. Though it didn't turn out that way, we knew that we couldn't just let this go. Inside of this album, where nearly 100 people were pictured, we knew we had the ancestors of many people who were alive today. That's what made us go on the journey to tell the story of Fanny and her album and all those pictured inside. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate goal, was to connect ancestors with descendants. Anyone alive today who may have someone pictured in the album that they've never seen, their great, 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 even great grandparents may be pictured inside. But we had our work cut out for us because most of the pictures, like most photo albums, weren't identified. Only a few had inscriptions. Our biggest clue in our research actually came from an inscription on the inside cover of the album. Inside, it told us that the owner of the album was a woman by the name of Fanny Keene. It also told her that the album was a gift from her husband, William Keene, on April 28, 1884, for her 42nd birthday. In so many ways, that simple inscription in less than 30 words was tantamount to a birth certificate that we knew we would never find. With that, we were able to find Fanny in the 1880 census with her first, perhaps even second husband. We're not sure. Again, William Keene was her husband at the time. We know from our research that she was married um, at least three times, possibly four. <laughs> And, this is the most interesting part, she outlived them all. <laughs> she lived to the ripe old age of 82, um, dying in 1925. But from that inscription, we knew that she was born in uh, the 1840s. Again, we didn't have a birth certificate, but we had something almost as good. The inscription also told us where Fanny was living in 1880, that was helpful because it led us to the 1880 census. There we found Fanny living with William Keene and his son from his first marriage. We were really excited, but we knew we had a problem. If William had been married before, that meant that we probably were going to have trouble finding Fanny. The only way we could find Fanny before 1880 was if we had a marriage certificate or a marriage license which again, we knew probably didn't exist. So we had to go with some of the other clues from the album. And as I said, there weren't many inscriptions or many helpful tips. And that's one of the reasons why 
this type of research can take so long. When my mom passed away in 2007, we had put a pretty good dent in some of the research. And she, as a historian and genealogist, had trained me pretty well. But in many ways, I was lost without her. So in 2007, trying to do it on my own, it was difficult, it was exciting, but I always had her voice in my head, and I could always go back to something she said to guide me along my way. We tried so long uh, to, when she was alive, to try to identify as many people as we could. We wound up being able to identify what we called or what we considered five main families from the inscriptions. So we had the Keene family, which was Fanny's name in the 1880s. But then we would learn after 1900, or around 1900, Fanny had married again. William Keene had died in 1887, so we had to go looking for Fanny in the 1900 census. We knew her name wasn't Keene, so we were kind of at a loss. We had the same problem when we looked for her before her marriage to William Keene. The only thing that I was able to find out in my research, my later research, was that William had been married before and that his wife had died in 1872. Her name was Clarissa. So the best I could deduce was that Fanny and William had married sometime after 1872 and before 1880. So you can kind of see how you can kind of get lost in all this without the kind of information, the kind of documents that you need. You really have to spend countless hours plowing through whatever's available, visiting towns, libraries, cities, you know, trying to get people to remember back 100 years or so. Um, and you do a lot of praying. My best source of information came from census data. My second best source of information came from the trips that I took to those small Midwestern towns. On my first trip to the Midwest, I thought I could get everything I needed in one visit. I planned to go to three towns that I knew of that had been mentioned in Fanny's album with hopes that I would find enough to lead me on my way or take me a little bit further. From that first trip, I knew I was nowhere near finished. After that trip, I took four more trips. The second one was probably, it was the longest, and I won't say most significant, but it was one where I learned so much that propelled me along uh, in such a way that I was able to find out so, so much more. I met a couple whose name uh, was Dolores and Dick Smith. They adopted me, and I adopted them. I met them in 2010. That was my second trip. I went to a small town in Missouri called Vandalia, Missouri. One of the images in the album, or several images in the album, actually, had been made in Vandalia. They themselves obviously weren't pictured in the album because this is 2010, but surprisingly, they knew someone who was married to someone who was pictured in the album. That was my most incredible find in 2010. 
From them, I learned that Dolores Smith had a cousin who was married to a young man named Basil Peak. That was a family I followed for quite a distance in my research. And in fact, that was one of the families that I ended up connecting with some of the descendants, most recently um, this year, actually. One of the things that was wonderful about that 2010 trip, not only meeting them and finding about their connection to someone in the album, was the woman, that the woman who was married to Basil Peak was still alive. She, she was nearly 100 years old, and it was one of the most difficult things, I, uh, choices that I had to make. As much as I wanted to go speak with her and show her what I had and talk to her, I hesitated because I had a piece of information that I wasn't sure that she had. And at nearly 100 years old, I didn't know, quite frankly, if it was going to kill her. <laughs> I'm being totally <laughs> serious about that. She, Basil was a, a little bit of a rolling stone. He worked on the railroad. He was a porter. And to put it simply, he got around, literally and figuratively. He had another family, and he had um, another set of children. I didn't know if she knew that, and I didn't want to tell her. I did share the pictures with her of who would have been uh, Basil's parents, and she recognized them. Her, her cousin took the picture over to her home and showed it to her, and she recognized them, and she gave me some interesting information about them. So that was the closest thing that I had come to meeting a descendant of someone pictured uh, in Fanny's album. Excited. I came back home on that trip. I was out there five days. I learned quite a lot, and I knew I had to go back. My next trip was a short trip, and I had one goal. The goal was to find Fanny's headstone. One of the things that we tried to do when we found a family was to follow them as far as we could in the census records, to go as far back as we could and to go as far forward as we could. We knew we had gone as far back with Fanny as we could, so we were trying to go forward. We found her in the 1900 census, as I mentioned. She was married to uh, George Peake at that time. But then when we went to look for her in the 1910 census, thinking that we would find a Fanny Peake there, hoping that we would find a Fanny Peake there, because we thought if we didn't find her there, maybe she had died. She wasn't there. But what we did find was a death certificate for a woman by the name of Frances Howard. When we checked for Frances Howard in the census, we knew, or were pretty sure we had our Fanny, but we still needed some verification. A marriage certificate would have confirmed that for us. Was Frances Howard and Fanny Peak one and the same? On that day that I traveled, I took a very short trip to St. Louis. I drove the 120 miles or so to the small town of Frankfurt, which is where Fanny spent her last days. It was pouring rainy. I uh, knew I had to make that trip. I was convinced that I was going to find it. I had been to that cemetery multiple times, and I said I know exactly where to look. I went, I looked, I found nothing. But two things happened that day that were extremely significant. 
First, I got confirmation that Fanny Peak and Fanny Howard were one and the same. That was wonderful because that way I knew Fanny was alive in 1910 and now I could go look for Francis Howard in the 1920 census. The other thing that happened that day was something that was totally unexpected, but it was something that let me know that I was on the right path and that somehow this was divine intervention. When I drove into that cemetery, again, I said it was pouring down rain, and I'd been in that cemetery multiple times. When I pulled up to, to stop, I looked over into the cemetery, into the spot where I thought Fanny's grave would be, and I rolled down the window. When I saw through me, it was another headstone. The headstone, the person who was buried there was Ella Peake. Ella Peake was Fanny's cousin. But that wasn't the most remarkable thing about what I saw. When I saw the date on her headstone, it read May 27th, 1886. Guess what day I was there? May 26th, May 27th. It was the same day on the headstone. That was confirmation. I knew that I was doing the right thing and that this was something that Fanny would have wanted. This is the wonderful thing about this type of research. You know, if you're doing anything with your own family, don't stop. You never know what you're going to find or when you're going to find it. The answers are there, or there are answers there that can lead you on to something else. Like I said, that let me know that I was on the right path. I found more families when I was doing my research for people pictured in the album. The Peaks, as I said, was another family. So we have the Keens, we've got Peaks, and then I discovered the Williams family. The Williams family came to me when I discovered Fanny's death certificate. As I mentioned earlier, I came across a death certificate for Francis Howard. Now I know that that's Fanny Peak. On that death certificate were lots of names in a couple of places. That's a wonderful thing. And dates, because now you have additional information to go check in other places. When you have nothing to start with, if you keep going, trust me, you'll find more to work with. So with that death certificate, I found that Fanny's mother was born in Africa, and I found that her father was born in Scotland. Unfortunately, and sadly, as vital as those two pieces of information were, I could not make out the names of either of her parents. These were in the days when they used those fountain pens, and the pen had just kind of gone wild across the death certificate, and it was hard to read. All I could make out was that the last names were Williams. So what that told me was Fanny's maiden name was Williams. So though I did not have a birth certificate or a marriage license that told me what her maiden name was, I got the information that I needed from her death certificate. I also got a piece of information, too, about someone else who was pictured in the album I would later learn. His name was Charles Williams. As it would turn out, that was Fanny's nep nephew, either a blood relative or, you know how we all kind of say, you know, that's our cousin or that's my aunt or whatever, so I'm not exactly sure. 
I do know, based on what I was later able to find, was that it was very likely that Charles's father, Thomas, and Fanny probably had been slaves together in Mississippi. He too was born in Mississippi. And my guess is, and this is an area that I need to research a little bit more, is that they traveled from Mississippi. Either they were freed or they made their way there via the Underground Railroad. I'm not sure. That's something I have to look into. But somehow they made their way to Missouri and other parts north. Because I had that family name from the death certificate, as I said, I had another uh, family to research. Now, ironically enough, and this is sometimes you just get lucky, and this isn't going to sound like luck. Eight days before Fanny died, on August the 2nd, 1925, her last husband died. And by the way, he was 15 years her junior. (laughs) Pretty good, right, Fanny? So at 75 years old, she married a man 17 years her junior. If he hadn't died eight days before she did, he likely would have been the one to sign her death certificate. If he had signed her death certificate, if he had signed her death certificate, there's a great chance I wouldn't have found the Williams family. I wouldn't have known about them at all. So again, you never know what you're going to find, and where you're going to find it. That family, um, as it turns out, I believe, and this is one of the great mysteries of Fanny's album, is that we don't know what happened to Fanny's album after she died in 1925. All we can do is speculate. But my guess is that uh, Charles Williams, who was her nephew, he had a daughter, I think she took possession of the album and cared for it after Fanny's death. Fanny, I believe, had two children, but according to the census data, it's a little sketchy. In the 1900 census, it said that, and this is one of the um, census years where they actually recorded the number of children that that a woman had given birth to and how many of them were still living, which is a vital piece of information. All census records don't record that. But in her record, it said that she had given birth to two children. But in the box where it said how many were still alive, there was just an X. I didn't know what to make of that. And to this day, I don't know. All I can go by is what Charles Williams, her nephew, said in a notation he put in her estate papers. In there, he said that he was the sole surviving. No, he said that Fanny had no living relatives other than he and his daughter. So I can only assume from that if she did have children, they weren't alive. And that's why most likely Estelle uh, Williams, who was Charles's daughter, took possession of Fanny's album. Another great mystery is how Fanny's album made it from Missouri to Maryland. <laughs> The only clue I have is the fact that Estelle Williams, who again, who I think took possession of the album, eventually moved to Amherst, Massachusetts. Now, that's not down the road, but (laughs) it's a little bit closer. And my assumption is, and again, this is something else I have to research, is that uh, Ronald Rooks, who did own the antique shop here over on Howard Street, chances are he, he traveled around looking for items to put in his store. 
And it wouldn't have been outside the realm of possibility for him to go, you know, to Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, or wherever, looking for antiques, looking for things that he could put in his shop. That's the only thing that I can go by at this point. The next two families, the two major families that I met were... Um, so we have the Williams, we have the Peaks, we have the Keens, and then we have the McDonald's, and we have the, uh, well, I'll start with the McDonald's. The McDonald's family was a family that I believe Fanny and her husband, her first or second husband, William Keen knew in the 1800s. The first picture inside of Fanny's album is of a young man named Louis Napoleon McDonald. For reasons unknown, his picture appears in the first slot inside of Fanny's album. Also inside Fanny's album is his brother, Samuel Ernest McDonald. Cute little guys. I thought they might have come up by now, but I'll show you a little bit later. And by the way, I brought the album here with me tonight. I, I went back and forth about it, but I thought, you know, tonight's a special night, and I wanted to give anybody that came tonight a chance to look at the real thing so you can see what it looks like. The McDonald family, um, I would learn quite a bit about and follow them, like the Peak family, pretty far into the present day. The records that I found led me to a death notice for Samuel Ernest McDonald, who died in 1972. I was able to find him and his family in the 1930 census and in the 1940 census. And there I, was, I learned that he had three children, and that was exciting because in 1930 I said, oh, I've got a really good chance that they're probably still alive. As that would turn out, two of his children had died relatively early, but he did have a daughter that was alive. And when I was looking for that family, I found what I think was his daughter on Ancestry.com. I sent a message to her hoping that she would respond, but she was in her 80s, and not that that you know, was old by any stretch, certainly not, but I didn't know for certain whether you know, she was in good health, or whether or not this was someone who had actually just put up the page for her. So I never heard back from her. But what I did find on there, and I kept looking, I continued to look, and one day on Ancestry.com, I came across a picture. And the picture was of Samuel Ernest McDonald as a married man. So it was him and his wife, Catherine, and their wedding picture. And I was so excited because I really wanted to show them the picture that I had because the picture that I had, the picture that was in Fanny's album, was of Samuel Ernest when he was about four years old. That would have been, he was born in 1884, 1886. So that's what, 1890. I thought that would have been something that they would have loved to have seen. But again, I wasn't able to connect with that family. The research will continue. I know I will probably never be finished. As I said, I had hoped 
to identify everybody in Fanny's album. I haven't been able to do thus far, but as I say in the last chapter of my book, I will not rest. My ultimate goal, again, is to connect ancestors with descendants and to have the largest family reunion, like, ever, of anyone who may be alive today that is connected to Fanny's album. There are so many uh, things that I could share with you. I hope uh, we're going to get to the Q&A in a minute that you all ask me some of the questions because there are so many different directions I could go off in and so many different things I can tell you about Fanny and some of the people pictured in her album and about our journey. My mom will always be with me, so I know I will never finish. Thank you, everybody, and I am open for questions. Is that okay? Did the company making the photographs, did any of those represent leads for you? I'm sorry, did the company making the... Any of the photographs? I just happened to, within the last five minutes to notice that the names, um, company names at the bottom, I think those were company oh, names at the bottom yes. of the photographs. On some of the photographs. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, the names at the, if I was lucky, if I didn't have an inscription, and this was another invaluable clue with the with a lot of the photos. They would have a, what they call a photographer's mark. So it would tell me where the photograph had been taken. If I was really lucky, I got a date to go along with that. More often than not, I just got the name of the photographer and the location, which meant that I had to more accurately date the photograph so I could try and find the photographer first in the census record. If I could do that, I could have a, a better idea of when the photo was taken. Did that answer part of your question? That's my cousin, by the way. <laughs> Thank you for making that the first question. Don't give me a tough one now. <laughs> She's going to come around. Hello, Pam. Steve, what's up? Um, I, I did recall you said that um, she had children. Fanny had children at one period of time. And... Um, it wasn't known how many because you, you, she marked X, correct? Yeah, how many were still living was, yeah, was how X many in were that still box. Living. Mm -hmm. but, it, but it was never known. Right. My question is, the, the letter X, could that mean for the number 10? Mm. Mm. I mean, have you ever thought of that? Before? I never thought of that. That's, a, that's an interesting thought. But you know, and even though it said how many she had given birth to. And here's the thing. So that was a two in that box. But one of the things that, you know, I learned from my mom early on was that you couldn't always go by what you saw in the census data. While you're excited to see something, you have a record, you've got some data, and you're like, yes. It's not always accurate. It depended on what was happening on the day that the census taker went out to collect the information. If the people that were in the book or who the census taker was trying to record weren't home, they may have gotten the information from a neighbor 
or whoever was close by. Or, worse still, they put in a number. So you just don't know. So you always try to find multiple, multiple sources. So yes, yeah, Steve, that's a, that's a good point. I stand, you know, given the fact that Fanny had been married multiple times, she could, in fact, have had, you know, had 10 children. I don't know. It's a good point. Thank you. Did you, did you ever think about going to funeral homes in Missouri for more information or maybe like looking at the programs or funeral maybe somewhere? Yes. Yes, I did. And um, actually, my, uh, uh, another fantastic source of information uh, was all of, were all of the um, cemeteries that I visited. And I knew of a, um, from the death certificates that I got in some cases, and I only got actually one or two death certificates. Fanny, that was the most vital one. I did get a name of a funeral home, so that's on my list. You know, I was so determined to find her headstone and uh, my trips, when I took them, I was so limited in the amount of time that I could spend in each place. I, uh, that was one of the things that I had to kind of let go. So I hit historical societies. I hit libraries. I looked you know, through their estate papers when I could find it looking for clues. But hopefully, like you said, you know, the, um, the, semi- uh, the uh, funeral home, which I think is still there, it's, it's changed names and ownership. And hopefully, because these are small towns, and they've been around, they've been on the map for a while, so it's a good chance that they haven't thrown anything away. I'm hoping. Yeah, and... and you know, the, and, you know, and the death certificates are, are just like the census records, too. You know, you, you know, you're relying on an informant to provide information about someone, too. So you hope that um, what you see is the correct information. But you always have to verify your sources. Sometimes that takes, you know, finding, you know, two or three or maybe even more documents to, to help you with that. Thank you. Chris, yay. Classmate, 1975. Yay. Hi, Sheila. In my research for my family, I had a great-grandmother who, in the Bible, recorded the death of three of her children due to scarlet fever. Wow. And my mother had traveled with her father in, he was a doctor, in uh, St. Mary's County, and during the, the, the flu, the Spanish flu epidemic. Okay. And many people, they would come to a corner and there'd be six or seven people who wanted him to sign death certificates. Mm. So it's possible she had two children and she lost them at the same time due, due to some illness or plague of some sort. That's why I invited you all here, so you could help me with the next phase of my research. That's a, that's a great point, you know, because you can't think of everything, you know, and um, that, that's, yeah. You know, in fact, um, in 1918, 1918, 1970, I think there was a huge uh, epidemic that wiped out a good part of the country, or certain parts of the country, the Midwest, in particular, I know about um, influenza. Yeah, and I don't, and, um, yep. Yep, exactly. So yeah, World War, I would have been exactly around that time. 
And that's a good thing to check too, you know. Like I said, there's so many things that you have to pull into your research, you know. You can't just go by what you see, you know. You have to obviously take what you can get and dig, dig, dig for more. But you also have to, you know, formulate theories, hypotheses, test them out, reformulate, retest. You know, it's it's just an ongoing process. You know, and like... uh, I said earlier, you have to love history and you have to love a good mystery because you're going to find plenty of it. Thank you, Sheila. Oh, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I can't see. Uh, Hi, Dale. Well, tell me what year she, uh, Fanny was born in. 1842. Well, and that's uh, what I deduced from the inscription on the inside cover. Yeah. Now, her death certificate suggested a different date, but still 1840s. Information to confirm or refute whether or not she was born into born to enslaved parents or free free parents. Yeah, um, based on what I was able to find, and her death certificate kind of led me to believe this. First of all, uh, knowing that, and I'd seen this in the census records that she was born in Mississippi, and um, in the 1840s, I knew that from the inscription. So I surmised that she most likely was born into slavery. Um, then when I found her death certificate and I saw that her mother was African, that kind of, that's like my second piece of evidence that she's a slave because her mom didn't come here free. I think we all can agree on that. <laughs> right. So, and that's why I said, I'm always looking for extra piece of information. And then with her father and her father on the death certificate said he was born in Scotland. So I, and and again, it's, it's really a theory, you know, I, until I actually have a death certificate, uh, birth certificate, which I don't think exists, I can, I can never know. But I'm almost 100% certain that she was born into slavery. And so she would be listed as property somewhere. Yes, but only as a tick mark. In the 1840 census, if you look, if she were a slave, I can, and this is one of the trips that I want to make to. I didn't make it down south. I need to go to Mississippi with some friends who've been to Mississippi and who know Mississippi. <laughs> so <laughs> luckily I have some friends like that. Not ready to do that one by myself. But um, to look for uh, him as a plantation owner. And the name on the death certificate, it looks like it could be Patrick, but it's really not just by the way that the letters appear, even though it's really, really smudged and hard to read, I don't think it's Patrick, but I know the name of the town where she's born. So that's where I can start and find his records. And it, it should give me some more information, I'll say that. I won't see a name. My last question, I'm sorry. Um, did you get the name of her mother? And what, what would it be? What part of Africa was she in? It didn't say. It just said Africa. And, um, but you could tell by her, if you have her given name. Yeah. Name. And um, it was, it looked, it appeared to be M, it looked to be M-A-R-C-A-L. That looked to be how it was written. It was fairly clear. So, if you know what to do with that, you let me know. Because I, I um, that was all I could, I could make out. Thank you. That was a great question, too. I think she was next. 
Hi. Hi. Um, I want to say first that I'm here because I knew your mother. Oh, we, you did? Okay. We were members of the same genealogy group. And when I saw your okay. picture, I said, oh, she looks familiar. Okay. I'd yeah. like to know if there is an image of Fanny. Yes. In there. Is there any? Yes. There? And I will. Where's, where's, uh, did he leave me? I think he left me. Give me one second. Okay. So now, I'll tell you, no picture in the album was identified as Fanny. So I came to this conclusion by collecting about 10 pieces of information that I sort of knew to be f fact. One of them is the picture just on the right, which I believe is Fanny shortly before her death in 1925. It's the only picture in the album that's a candid photo. In other words, it's not posed. She's in the photo with a man who I believe was Thomas Williams, her cousin, and two other women who I think she had known for quite some time. When I put these two pictures together, using that as one of my clues, I said this is likely her. Then I took the two photos that I believe to be her parents. There was only one woman pictured in Fanny's album that was old enough who looked as though she could have been pure African that met that, met that description. Based on the date of the photograph and the approximate age of the photograph and her resemblance to Fanny, I said, ah, now I've got another piece. Then I looked to see, and again, this is all based on this death certificate that I found. So now I'm looking for a white guy in Fanny's album who might look like her. I knew the photo, if there was one, it had to be older, probably taken in the 1860s or so, when she's in her 20s and likely free in the 1860s. And I came across one picture and when I compared them, and I'll, I'll pull that up in a second. I'll, when I get over there, to, I'll show you. But I have a picture of the three of them uh, side by side so you, can, so you can see. But when you look at her jaw, Fanny's jaw, and his jaw, you can see it. And the nose, because if you look at Fanny's nose, you're like, I don't think that came from Africa. <laughs> I know I can say that because I'm amongst friends. <laughs> yeah. Did you consider the possibility that she had been born enslaved and was emancipated by her father? Yes. 
I certainly did. And I search for emancipation records in Mississippi. Did you have I'm gonna put you to work too. Okay. I'm gonna put you to work too. And because you know, there's so many, like I said, there's so many different uh, avenues to explore, you know. And it takes time and manpower. I don't think my boss is here today, so you know, I might have to quit my job sometime soon. So I can really devote full time to this. Um, but yeah, I, I, I recognize and realize that a lot of my answers uh, could be there as well. Based on the fact that, and I truly believe that her father is pictured in the album, based on the fact that she put him in the album, and I was talking with someone about this the other day about why she would have done that. And I, whenever I think about it, I always say to myself, I always go back and forth and back and forth, but I always keep coming back to the same thing. It was her father. And that also leads me to believe that at some point their relationship was, for lack of a better word, a decent one. And that he may have freed her and the other people that he owned. And that was how they were able to make their way north and make a decent life for, for themselves. Yes, I do. I do. You pretty much answered the question, but um, looking at the photo and the people in the album, they look pretty prosperous. Uh, looking at the clothing that they're wearing and the furniture, furniture that I saw with the pictures. I wanted to know that, um, whether the, they were identified as mulattoes on the census, firstly, and then secondly, did you find out what kind of jobs um, they had at that particular time? Because the census sometimes will tell that. Yes, yes, and the, uh, the census records were, were great with that. Um, Fanny, when she was married to William in the 1880s, William was a barber which was a common occupation for black men in that day, along with farming. When uh, she married her second husband, or third husband, depending on how you, you look at it, <laughs> uh, he was a farmer, as were, were her uh, cousins, the Williams. They were, can you all, can you all still hear me? They were uh, farmers. And, actually had amassed quite a bit of land. In fact, uh, Charles Williams, who was listed as her nephew, when he died, and I came across his estate papers, he had 700 acres of land. Fanny herself, in uh, 1900, had 140 acres. So a little more than 40 acres and a mule, right? So, and you know, <laughs> if you've ever been to the Midwest, and if you never have, Take a trip. I mean, it's worth, I know we got a Chicagoite here, so <laughs> we'll do. Um, take a look, and it's, it's a beautiful part of the country, and it's just vast, it's spread out, and you can see how, even with a small piece of land, they could have made um, a good living. The family that I met when I went out on my second trip, uh, who I call Ma and Pa, they, and actually, uh, Ma just actually died uh, a few years ago in uh, 2013, but I have been out since to uh, visit my Pa. <laughs> they still have 160 acres of farmland to this day. 
they rent it out, you know, because, you know, he's older and he doesn't farm it, but they rent it out. But the family, the, the land was passed along, um, you know, through their family. So they had the land. They knew how to farm it. They were good at it. So that's pretty much how they made their way. And in the case of William Keene and uh, the McDonald family, they were, they were barbers too. They made a good living as well in the small towns because barbering back in that day, it was more than just cutting hair. When people came in, they got a shave. You heard shave and a haircut, right? So they got a shave and a haircut. And sometimes they actually got bathed when they were in there. That was part of it too. So it was the whole, hopefully they got bathed because that's kind of, in some cases, the only way they did get bathed. Um, that, uh, that they took care of all that. And their clients were predominantly white. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even venture to say all white. So, and the fact that he was, a, and William was a barber for about, I found him in the, his, family, his first family in the 18, I found him as early as 1850. And he was a barber then. He was born in 1925. So from the age of 25 to when he died at the age of 67, he was a barber. So, yeah, he, he did well. Anybody else? Okay. Ms. Hicks? Okay. Now, you have to stand up because I can't see you. Okay. I'm going to stand. I'm going to go read. <laughs> You're okay. So you can hear me. I can hear you. But I was going to say to the lady's remark behind me who talked about mulatto. Yes. And because that's a French word. Mm -hmm. And mulatto really doesn't mean black and white. It means black and in, I mean, it means white and Indian. Mm -hmm. And knowing that so many Indians were marched across the country and uh, to, through the Midwest. Yes. That it is very possible that some of those people could really have been mulattoes, which does account for, if you look at their features, uh, you see that. Yes. <laughs> and uh, certainly their coloring would tell you that. You can't tell that in those old photos. You can't tell much about the coloring, but you can see the features and that they were probably somewhere along the line. Some of them were actually Mulatto. Yes, yeah, and there was quite a bit of that. Um, in the pictures, as you all saw, in the ones that were scrolling through, you probably saw that there were a lot of individuals there that looked as though they could have been um, a mixed race. So that definitely wasn't uncommon in that day, and I did find a lot of that in, uh, in the pictures that I was looking through in the album. Anybody else? Roz? Okay. When you and your mom picked up the album, <clears throat> it was the hope was that you would find um, more information about your own family. Yes. And interestingly, Fanny's family, did you temporarily abandon your own familial search? What, have, what was the impact of this on that? Yeah, and that mom um, kind of ran into... Um, a roadblock with her mother's side of the family, and that's where she concentrated her efforts. And, you know, unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that, that can happen. You know, you can run into a roadblock, and you can't go any further unless you 
sometimes you do just road into a roadblock. And in our case, that is what happened. You know, there, there weren't any records um, that she came across. And she, when she retired from school teaching, she uh, spent countless hours every day, you know, researching this. And this was back in the day when there was really no Ancestry.com. There was, she would go over to the National Archives two or three times a week, and she would lock the door behind her when she left. <laughs> she was you know, over there that often. And, um, but I, I still have a lot of uh, the papers that, that she um, amassed when she was doing the research on our family. So that's just something, you know, definitely something that I want to get back to and try, you know, to maybe bust through that roadblock. You know, more information is available now than it was and more ways of finding it. You know, it's easier to travel, it's easier to find things on the internet. Uh, so there may be hope. Hi. That's so other people can hear you too. Oh, no problem. First of all, did you keep a personal journal, even though you're researching this? Did you keep a personal journal? And how many places have you been traveling for your research? Oh, for, for this book? Um, I went, I said I traveled five times to the Midwest, and yes, I did uh, keep a journal of my travels. I um, traveled to a town called uh, Galesburg, Illinois, which is where I think Fanny lived before she was married to William Keene. I also think that's where the portrait of her um, that I believe to be of her was made, was made in Galesburg. And that was actually one of my first stops. I went to Lewistown, Illinois, which was where she was when she was married to William. I've been there three times. And um, I also, on that first trip, I went to the town of Bushnell in search of the McDonald's. So and I, I never went back to Bushnell. I learned about the Peak family right after that trip, and I started looking for them in Vandalia, Missouri. I traveled there, and also Frankfurt, Missouri, which is where I spent the majority of the time on all of my subsequent trips. And uh, so those five, five places, looking for um, where I knew I might find some information I also traveled to some towns where there, where the libraries and the historical societies were close by, just to see. I, um, on my uh, second trip, which I said was my longest trip, I uh, kept in contact with my cousin, uh, Tony. She, she lives in Chicago, she's not here today. But, um, and I was, I had a, so she's got record of my trips and I also was, I had a uh, uh, video cassette recorder uh, that I was talking into the whole time when I was on when I was on the road, you know, because I was seeing some stuff that I was like, wow, you know, and that's the crazy part too. You know, it's like I got to do this research, I got to go here, I got to go there. But you know, you're driving down these roads and you're seeing all kinds of cool stuff, and you're like, oh man, I wish I could stop there and do some research, you know, because it's so easy to go off on a tangent. I couldn't. Hear you. Why was it so I, important? To you? Why was it so important? Yes, especially when we we found out you didn't finish researching your own family. <laughs> you know, that, 
<laughs> so I'm just curious. I get, I get asked that question almost as much as I get asked, you know, who was Fannie Keen? Why would you bother? That's a short and simple answer. If I knew that anyone had a collection of photographs of my family, I would want to know about it. There was no way that we were going to just sit on this and not try and find the people who were pictured in Fanny's album. Because like I was saying earlier, you know, these are somebody's ancestors. You know, who among us can say that we have a photograph of our great, 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 even great grandparents? And we're really, we're talking seven generations here, you know? So, yeah, it was something we could, you know, we absolutely had to do. Great, great questions, everybody. Thank you. I appreciate it. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.